Well, here's a question. It's not one of the two that's up there. A more general question, what makes aesthetic value aesthetic value? I'm at the moment working on a book called The Aesthetic Value Question that attempts an answer to that question, what makes aesthetic value aesthetic value. If I had more self-knowledge than I do, I'd say I'm finishing that book. But I've been saying that for a long time, and it's not getting finished. So I've finished two of three parts, and I've been stuck in the third part for a while. The first part is called The Aesthetic Question, and it's about what makes aesthetic value aesthetic. And it's negative. It's about what happens if you ask that question without keeping the other one in mind. And then the second part of the book is called What Makes Aesthetic Value Value, also negative, about what happens, not good things, if you ask the question what makes aesthetic value value without keeping the aesthetic question in mind. And then the third part of the book is positive, where I attempt a positive answer. And the talk I'm giving draws mainly from parts – I draw from different parts of the book, but I am going to be trying to give a positive answer to the value question, never losing sight of the aesthetic question as I do it. I am going to start by explaining why I think the two questions need to be asked in tandem. That's going to take me a little while. After I'm done with that, I'm going to attempt my positive answer. I'm just going to confess in advance that what I'm going to be giving is kind of a sketch of the positive answer. It's not going to be very fully developed. So be prepared for that. So given those two questions, here's a taxonomy of different kinds of theories of aesthetic value. We can divide them into the incomplete ones and the complete ones. The incomplete ones attempt only one answer or the other. The complete ones attempt to answer both. What I call a dual theory attempts to answer both, but to answer them in independent ways. So the two answers stand or fall separately. What I'm calling a unified theory attempts to answer one question in answering the other. And it should be clear by now that I'm pursuing a unified theory. Well, this is just maybe a better way of putting a unified theory is to say it's an answer to a single question. Because a more radical way of putting the thesis of the book I'm working on is it might be better not to think of the question of what makes aesthetic value aesthetic value as subdividing the two questions. It might be better to think of it as a single question, which once you divide it into two separate questions, you're going to get into trouble. Okay. Here's some examples of theories of these kinds. So I take formalism to be an answer to the aesthetic question. It's an answer to the aesthetic question because it does what an answer to the aesthetic question should do, according to me, which is it 
posits an explanation of the sense in which aesthetic value is perceptual. But formalism doesn't give you any formalism doesn't give you any reason why you should pursue aesthetic value. It doesn't give you any kind of explanation as to why things are valuable. It just tells you that they're valuable in virtue of the way they look or sound or some other sensory property. Incomplete theories that answer only the value question include hedonism, which has been the predominant theory, the theory according to which aesthetic value is value in virtue of which, uh, in virtue of affording pleasure, or more broadly, intrinsically valuable experience. And then there's the network theory, which is the theory proposed in Don Lopez's new book, Game for Beauty. Um, I don't want to attempt to give a short description of that theory because I'll, I'll mess it up. I, I'll just say that it identifies aesthetic value as a species of the most basic kind of practical value. Um, then, fairly popular dual theory, just take formalism and add it to hedonism. They don't imply each other. And I've got a question mark here because it's not clear to me what goes here, besides my theory. Um, I mean, I, although it does seem to me that there are probably a number. Here's a claim I'll make, which, I'll, which, which I'm, I'm happy to try to entertain during question and answers, but I probably won't be able to defend very well. Um, it, I, I have a sense that there might be a lot of these, uh, that, that the history of philosophy produced many of them, because it seems to me that the division of the two questions didn't occur until probably the 19th century. I mean, it only became possible to ask the questions separately in, uh, fairly late in the history of aesthetics. Before that, it never occurred to anybody that there was any, I mean, it didn't occur to anybody that there was this kind of theory, because it didn't occur to anybody that these things could come apart. Okay. Um, now, um, I want to focus on theories that just answer the value question. Um, Don Lopez, in his book, if you if you've looked at it, gives an argument as to why that's the only question that really matters. So any theory that answers the aesthetic question, this is too strong. Uh, I was about to say it's wasting your time, but it's addressing a question which which he calls a distraction. Um, Um, well, first of all, here's an overview. I'm going to argue that we, that we have reasons for preferring unified theory. Then I will propose constraint on that theory. And then I'll give a theory that fits the constraint. I'm not going to claim that my theory is the only one that fits the constraint. Um, so here's, here's what Dom says about why we should answer the value question and not concern ourselves with the aesthetic question. First of all, the value question is the one that matters. It's the one that matters because it's the one that tells us how aesthetic value fits into a life well lived. The aesthetic question doesn't help you answer that. 
Now, of course, if we're answering the question, what makes aesthetic value value, we need to make sure that we're asking the question about aesthetic value. Dom recognizes this. But to know that we're asking the question about aesthetic value, we don't need to know what makes aesthetic value aesthetic. We need to know which values are the aesthetic ones. So we separate two questions. One question is the which question. Which values are the aesthetic ones? We need an answer to that, Don recognizes. We don't need the full-blown what makes them aesthetic. And we have an answer to the question, which values are the aesthetic ones? Simply gave it to us. If you read aesthetic concepts, you'll see that Sibley gives us a number of lists. Um, this happens to be the list that Dom cites, but you can find a lot more in Sibley's article. And you're invited by Dom to extend the list. So anything that's on that list or that anyone would agree belongs on that list counts as an aesthetic value. And that's enough for us to get a fix on which values are the aesthetic ones, which is enough for us to be able to answer the question, what makes aesthetic value value? Okay. Concerns I have. Sibley's list is not a list of aesthetic values. Sibley doesn't say that it is. In fact, he says there are aesthetic terms and when he's being careful, he says they are terms that are sometimes used aesthetically. So sometimes they pick out aesthetic values. When, there's no way of knowing when outside of the context of aesthetic judgment. It is only in the context of particular aesthetic judgments that you know that a term is being used Aesthetically. So, if I'll put it this way, I read aesthetic concepts quite differently than I think Dom does. Dom reads it as providing you with a list of aesthetic values, and I read it as explaining to you why you could never have a list of aesthetic values. That's the thesis of the paper: is you could never have such a thing. Um, and. I'm not going to read through here, but this is pretty much the list we looked at a minute ago. And these are all look-like cases, or at least these are cases which invite you to think of those very same terms as functioning non-aesthetically. Now that raises the question, well, what is it for a term to have an aesthetic function? And I think if we had an answer to the aesthetic question, what makes aesthetic value aesthetic, we would know the answer to that question. It wouldn't allow us to produce a list. It would, it would just be, we would just understand what it is for an aesthetic term to, to be functioning aesthetically. Okay. That's one concern I have. Here's a second concern, and for me, this one strikes me deeper. Um, uh, let's imagine that we had an exhaustive list of aesthetic values. Let's imagine that we can have what I just said you couldn't, you couldn't possibly have. And let's imagine that we have not merely a 
kind of a short list that we're invited to extend, but that we have one that's fully exhaustive. So we know exactly which things have aesthetic value. So there's a difference between these two questions. There's, there's the value question. What makes aesthetic value value? And then there's what I'm calling the imposter question, but I, I, maybe I should have a nicer name for this question. Um, uh, what makes some value had by things that have aesthetic value value? I'm calling it the imposter question not to be mean, but because you can answer the imposter question and believe you're answering the value question. And not be. So, hedonism and network theory, they, they, de they're definitely answering the imposter question. Now, I'm not claiming that they're not answering the value question. I'm just claiming that the fact that they're answering the imposter question doesn't mean they're answering the value question. And there's no good inference from an answer to the value question. I'm sorry, from an answer to the imposter question to an answer to the value question. So as long as this is all you have, you don't have good reason to think that you're answering the value question. So let me give an example. I'll, I'll give an example just with hedonism. Suppose the premise on top is true. Things having aesthetic value have value because they get pleasure. In other words, suppose it's true that everything that has aesthetic value gives pleasure. It doesn't follow that aesthetic value is value because it gives pleasure. Because it might be that things that have aesthetic value give pleasure because they already have aesthetic value. And this is a view which has been pretty widely held in the, in the history of philosophy. It seems to be what Plato thought. It's clearly what St. Augustine thought. It's very clearly what Hutchinson thought. It seems from pretty clearly what, what Hume thought. I don't know how to make, myself, I don't know how to make sense of the distinction between pleasure is beautiful and agreeable unless Kant thought something like this. So um, even if that's true, the inference doesn't go through. And I don't have a separate slide for the network theory but the, the same logic's gonna apply. I mean, we can, we can imagine that everything that has aesthetic value has the most basic kind of practical value. It won't, it won't follow that what makes aesthetic value value is that it has that basic practical value. Think of this example. Everything that has moral value has the most basic practical value. But it would be rash to assume that moral value is just the most basic practical value. So here's a kind of a quick running, it's a little bit of a summary. Knowing what makes aesthetic value value requires knowing what makes aesthetic value value. But knowing that some value 
is had by things having a steady value is not knowing that that value is a steady value. Knowing that some value had by things having a steady value is a steady value requires knowing what makes a steady value value. And that means if you're going to know the answer to the value question, you have to know the answer to the aesthetic question. Let me, be, let me be, be clear what I haven't claimed. I haven't claimed that hedonism can, I, can't be true. I haven't claimed that the network theory can't be true. I've claimed that we could ask of both theories, what reason do we have to think that you are theories of aesthetic value and not some other kind? Okay, um, so let's move on and attempt an answer. Um, now, here I'm introducing a new term actually. This is constraint on a unified answer to the, to the value question. By unified answer I mean constraint on an answer to the value question that figures in a unified theory. So another way of saying it would be constraint on an answer to the value question that is, that is also an answer to the aesthetic question. And to start with, I want to posit constraints. I'm not going to argue for either one of these. I'm just going to posit a constraint on both questions. And, these, and I'm positing constraints on um, both the aesthetic question and the value question. I'm not worrying about whether these are, whether these are um, unified answers. Any answer to the value question must explain what O's having aesthetic value gives us reason to do. And I'm going to call it the normative constraint. And the aesthetic question must explain the connection, the sense in which aesthetic value is perceptual. So if those are constraints on any answers to the value question, and the aesthetic question, then a constraint on a unified answer to the value question is it's going to have to answer one question in answering the other. So in explaining what O is having aesthetic value gives us reason to do, it has to explain the sense in which aesthetic value is perceptual. And oh, I thought I had the slide here. Well, <coughs> if, you, if you look at this just for a second, part of it's talking about what O's having a value gives us reason to do, and the other one is focused on perceiving. And so it stands to reason that we're going to get something like this. The thing that aesthetic value gives us reason to do is going to be to perceive. A theory that says that the thing that aesthetic value gives us reason to do is perceive is going to be a theory that has a chance of answering both questions at once. We just need to figure out now what the sense of perceive is that's referred to in the perceptual constraint.
Here are two possibilities. These are two possibilities that history has given to us. Um, again, you can give me nicer terms than the low way and highway. Um, uh, I'm just trying to be descriptive here, though. <laughs> Look, the, I call this one the low way only because it puts perception down below. Right? So, aesthetic value properties are properties that depend on perceptual properties. Whereas the highway says, no, aesthetic value properties are themselves perceptual, and they depend on lower properties, but it doesn't say anything about the kind of properties it depends on. And it's worth noting that what I'm calling the low way doesn't say anything about what kind of properties aesthetic properties are. Right? It kind of leaves this open. It just restricts the kinds of properties it depends on. This one says aesthetic properties are perceptual properties, leaves wide open the kinds of things that it can depend on. Now, both of these ways are going to run into a problem. The problem for the low way is going to be that it's way too restrictive. And the problem for the highway is going to be the opposite. It's going to seem like it lets way too much in. So the question is going to be, is it going to be, is it going to be easier to open up the low way or to restrict the highway? So here's a problem for each way. So a problem for the low way, I'm going to call the literature problem. And the literature problem just is that literary works would seem to have aesthetic value that doesn't depend on perceptual properties. So that seems like a counterexample. Problem for the highway, moral value properties are at least plausibly upper value, sorry, upper level perceptual properties. Now, let me, let me explain why I'm saying that. I'm being, I'm being pushed to this view because my, I'm very influenced by Hutchison and Hume. Hutchison and Hume both thought that beauty was what I'm calling an upper level perceptual property. And they both thought that virtue was exactly the same thing. It was really important to their theories that they were on exactly the same level. So it looks like if you let aesthetic value in, you're gonna, you might bring moral value in. If, if moral value to you does not seem like it's a, it's a perceptual property, an upper level perceptual property, use, one, use your own example. Use your own example. I'm going to worry about this one. Okay. Well, let's talk briefly about the literary value problem. I'm, this, is one that, this is one of a number of slides that I should probably spend a lot more time on than I'm going to. Um, but here are three solutions to the problem that I'm aware of. There are probably others that I should consider. In fact, I'm thinking right now that like Nick's got one that I should have thought of that um, isn't going to make it here. Um, one of them, uh, literary sonicism. So literary works have sonic properties. Um, they have rhythm, they have meter, they have rhyme. And it's in virtue of their sonic properties that they bear the aesthetic value that they bear. I take this to be Ermson's view. A second possibility. 
literary exceptionalism. This is just a view that literature is just, just weird when it comes to study value. Um, everything else, everything else that has study value has it in virtue of perceptual properties, but literature is the exception. And then there's finally literary anti-aestheticism. Literary value, in fact, is just not a kind of aesthetic value. It's a kind of artistic value. This is a view that, that Dante holds. I'm unconvinced by all three. It seems to me that the aesthetic value that we ascribe routinely to works of literature, a fraction of it can be explained by sonic properties. So Ermson's explanation doesn't work for me. As far as the exceptionalists go, this seems to me like they're punting. I mean, why then do, what? it just seems like they're saying, uh, we're just not gonna give an explanation for, what, for why literary works have aesthetic value. And if, this, if literary works can get by without depending on perceptual properties, and still have a steady value, what's to stop all sorts of other stuff from doing the same thing? And there's not a good explanation there. As for Danto, and I have treated this elsewhere at some length, I find his answer too revisionist. So there's a long history of treating literary works as bearers of steady value. So, for example, and this is an example that Danto concerns himself with, if you think of Hume's of the Standard of Taste, virtually every example in the essay is literary work, and this is an essay about the standard of taste and beauty. And Hume unproblematically ascribes beauty to works of literature, and he assumes his audience is doing the same thing all the time. So, I, now, Dante rereads Hume. I shouldn't say he rereads him. He reads Hume, he interprets Hume as, as not having at his disposal a distinction which it would have been good to have had. But that seems to me implausibly provisionist. It seems to me that Hume knows what he's doing. Okay. So that's why I'm not, I'm not attracted by um, the low way. Let's turn to the problem with the highway. Um, the, moral value, the moral value problem has a Kantian solution. Um, I'm not going to run through this slide in detail, but the Kantian solution just is judgments of beauty are disinterested. Judgments of moral value are interested. That means that judgments of beauty don't give us reason to do anything, whereas judgments of moral value do give us reason to do something. So, even if they are both perceptual, now Kant doesn't think they're both perceptual, but even if they were both perceptual, they would have this difference. But this is problematic, at least if you're approaching the value question the way that I am. Because if aesthetic value gives us no reason to do anything, and if to have aesthetic value is to give us reason to do something, then the claim that aesthetic value, that judgments of aesthetic value are disinterested, just is the claim that aesthetic value is not a value. 
But put that aside, it just does seem like aesthetic things having aesthetic value give us reason to do things. So I'm going to give one example, and this is an example I'm going to build on. Judging a cathedral to be beautiful seems like it gives you reason to visit it. Let me expand on that a little bit. So the next two slides are, I decided to go autobiographical the next two slides. I was in Germany a couple of years ago. Uh, I had a little time on my hands. I thought, what do I want to do? I consulted a guidebook. I read in the guidebook that the Cathedral of Spire is really beautiful. And so I went out of my way. I wasn't planning to visit Spire, but I went to Spire. And um, I judged for myself that it was beautiful. So I read that it was beautiful. In reading that it was beautiful, I found that I had a reason to visit the cathedral. Of course, the reason to visit the cathedral wasn't like a reason to visit the sick. It was a reason to perceive it to have to be beautiful. That's what it was a reason to do. And so generalizing a little bit, a testimonial judgment of beauty apparently prescribes, I'm sorry, it, uh, it predicates of its object that the object is such as to rationalize some perceptual judgment. When I judge by testimony that the cathedral is beautiful, what I judge is that the cathedral is such as to rationalize being the object of a perceptual judgment that it's beautiful. I mean, I could, I could put this more shortly. Testimonial judgments of beauty rationalize perceptual judgments of beauty. Okay. Now I arrive at the I, I arrive at the cathedral. I perceive that it is in fact beautiful. In perceiving that it is in fact beautiful, I confirm the testimonial judgment that I made earlier. The testimonial judgment that I made earlier held that the cathedral was such as to give me reason to make it the object of a perceptual judgment of beauty. But if that's so, if I'm confirming my testimonial judgment and my testimonial judgment had that content, then the content of my current perceptual judgment is that I ought to be making the perceptual judgment that I currently am making. So if testimonial judgments rationalize perceptual judgments of beauty, perceptual judgments of beauty rationalize themselves. Now that way of putting it's very short and it's probably not entirely accurate, probably this longer thing a little bit better. When you make a perceptual judgment of beauty, you predicate of an object that that object is such as to rationalize the very act of perception that you're engaged in. The, the, sorry, the act of perception or the act of judgment? Is there a mistake in that? No, there's no, no mistake, but um, 
the central judgment you're not now making is such as to give you reason to be making the perceptual judgment I'm now making. That what, what, you, what you spoke was something else. Yes. Uh, that's probably. Let me let me let me try again. I'm not looking at that. Let me, let me try. Let me try again and see if. Uh, and I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to tell you what I think is right, and we can decide whether what I say is right or that's right. <laughs> Those are your only two choices. <laughs> or some there are some some third thing or some third thing. Um, I go to the cathedral. I perceive that it's beautiful. In perceiving that it's beautiful, I perceive that I have reason. I, I perceive that the cathedral is such as to give me reason to make a perceptual judgment. Which one? This one. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's, what, that's what I meant to say. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. Okay, now I want to add a detail. This, this has kind of been implicit already. I want to make a distinction between conditional reasons to perceive and unconditional reasons to perceive. The word unconditional sounds stronger than I probably want it to sound. When, when, I, when I speak of unconditional reasons, I don't mean overriding reasons. When I, when I, when I read in the guidebook that the cathedral was beautiful, I didn't have an overpowering reason to see it. I just had a reason. Um, uh, but conditional reasons to perceive things to be a certain way are reasons that apply to you. To, so when, when, I, when I judge that something is a certain way, um, when I, well, I should, give the, I should give the example because I'll do it better. If I'm judging the color of the cathedral, and I judge it to be reddish-brown, then what I'm judging is that anyone in my circumstances should find it reddish-brown. But I'm not making any judgment about whether other people should be in these circumstances, whether they have any reason to be in these circumstances. I'm just judging that anyone in my circumstances has reason to make this same judgment. But when I make the judgment that the cathedral is beautiful, I'm making a stronger claim. I'm judging not merely that anyone who's in my circumstances should find the cathedral beautiful. I'm making the judgment that others have reason to be in my circumstances. So a thing being beautiful rationalizes. You're finding it beautiful if you happen to be looking at it, but it also rationalizes you're altering your circumstances so that you can find it to be beautiful. And it rationalizes your maintaining your circumstances so that you can continue to find it beautiful. The cathedral being reddish-brown doesn't do that. OK. So we have a solution, I hope, to the moral value problem. And the solution to the moral value problem is going to give us an answer to the value question, a unified answer to the value question. Um, couple that will perceive that O has aesthetic value. 
is to upper level perceive that O is such as to give you unconditional reason to be perceiving O as you are. To upper level perceive that something has moral value is to upper level perceive that you have unconditional reason to be doing something with respect to O, but that something is not merely perceiving it the way that you are. Something beyond that. I'm not really giving an account of what that is. I'm just saying it's, it's, not, it's not just what you're doing in the aesthetic case. So if that's right, then here's the answer that I promised earlier. So the aesthetic value of O is value because O is having it gives you an unconditional reason. Different level perceive O as giving you that reason. What reason? The reason to upper level perceive it as you are. Now, if this is a unified answer to the value question, then that's the answer to the aesthetic question. And if that's a unified answer to the aesthetic question, then that's the unified theory of aesthetic value. And I'll, and I'll stop there. I don't know.